Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Our guest this evening is a journalist and novelist whose work has appeared in many publications, such as the LA Weekly, Village Voice, Black Clock, Bomb, Harper's, LA New York Times, Believer, London Review, and The Nation, to name a few. He's also uh, reported from Afghanistan, Haiti, uh, Cambodia, El Salvador, Mexico, and all over the US. Uh, his first novel, The Suitors, was, re was received with critical acclaim. Uh, both ABA and Publishers Weekly says that he is the author to watch out for. Um, and he is here tonight to read from his new novel, Ether. Please join me in welcoming Ben Ehrenreich. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. It's great to read at my favorite bookstore. Um, I hope you'll buy lots of books, not just mine. Um, John Banville also called me a force that is gathering on the land, I think. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. Is that right? Is that what he said? A gathering power in the literary land. Um, I'm going to read um, one thing that is not from the book, because I'm going to be reading from the book a lot in the next uh, few weeks. Um, did anybody make it downtown yesterday for the, the protests or the uh, march? All right, so you may have seen some of these things. A friend of mine um, in Mexico City is putting together a newspaper, has been putting together a newspaper called um, Estrella Cercana, and asked uh, people all over to write something about what was going on all over the world yesterday, because there are protests not just here, but everywhere. So I, I wrote something really short. It doesn't really necessarily even count as writing. Gorgeous teen girl in shiny stretch pants, black fur hat, giant black pit bull, medium brown pit bull, 90-year-old woman shaky of footing, her son leading her slowly by the arm, seven members have closed the School of America's watch, three wearing almost identical floppy cotton sun hats, one teamster, one chihuahua, several paleteros looking tired, button-down man in button-down shirt, light blue, bearing sign, it's serious when real estate agents are marching. <laughs> Ponytailed man seated on grass, playing guitar while manipulating marionette. Marionette, wearing sombrero, wielding six-gun, dancing. Cops. Skinny dog, untended. Young man in Pendleton, long dicky shorts, head shaved, walking alone through crowd, yelling, stand up everybody, this is a revolution, not a Bob Marley concert. Pumpkin carved to resemble Dick Cheney's head, orange plastic horn. Man in black jeans, checked hat, standing beside very large sign. The dismantle of the evil secret societies, Wall Street, Fed, RVE, BIBIRG, international bankers and corrupts has begun. Vendetta is my, says the Lord, the O in Lord, a heart. The Spank of America guy, pretty butch girl with sign that says surfing, S-E-R-F, in the USA. 
Several peripheral drum circles, one central drum circle so large that has entirely subsumed a green dumpster, which in the process has been transformed into a large green drum. Purple sneakers, no laces, black boots, laced. Chicano punker teen in black crass tee, face covered with black bandana, sitting on curb, stroking cat. Pink-faced fellow in bow tie, bring back Roosevelt button pinned to his shirt. Hacky sack, bacon-wrapped hot dogs, jalapenos sizzling in fat, long lines. White-haired man with brown leather eye patch, neon green sign taped to empty blue tent, occupy LA, not Gaza. Australian woman in special Australian pogo stick-like bouncy sneakers, red short shorts, white t-shirt advertising massage services. Fuzzy brown dog of indeterminate breed. Woman in sunglasses with expensive looking hair sitting on sidewalk holding sign, stop depositing your soul into the lake of fire. Dancing boys and dancing girls, old man on crutch, zero waste recycling zone, round fellow with ponytail backpack sign reading Occupy the World. I take his picture with my phone. He smiles madly. When I check later, the image is gone. Blue recycling bins, free cookies, free water, free apples, man in green dragon suit, matching green chucks, white-haired wobbly in red t-shirt hoisting black and red flag, woman with multiply pierced face holding chihuahua, unpierced, thin man with long black hair and black pants and black shirt playing violin in city hall steps accompanied by a bongo, police motorcycles, donkey sculpture, compost, two brown teen boys shirtless, their chest tattooed, faces covered in bandanas, sharpie 99%, they carry signs reading, the world is abundant, they are laughing and laughing and laughing. That's that. I had fun yesterday. Um, so I'll read a couple short chapters from this. How sad should I be? You want to be really, it's Sunday, should I be really sad or you want to be a little funny? All right, I'll do it. Um, the first part is not that sad. The second part is kind of about sadness. So the, the book, I, I won't say too much about it. Um, it follows, I would say it follows two main characters, one of whom is uh, the ostensible author of the book, um, and the other is a character in the book uh, who's called only the stranger. Uh, and then there are these sort of interstitial chapters um, involving various characters who encounter this character called the stranger throughout. Um, I'm gonna read two of those. Um, the stranger doesn't figure in either of these chapters. Nor does the author, actually the author does a little bit. The first one's called Pigeon. Pigeon woke before his sisters. The eldest lay curled beside him, humming in her sleep with her thumb in her mouth, though she was three years older than Pigeon, and Pigeon was almost nine already. Her shoulder blade jutted over her back like the joint of a folded wing. Pigeon had to unravel the littlest one's arm from his waist before he could rise to his knees and crawl out from beneath the sheet of tin under which they'd laid their mattress. The dark had not yet lifted, but Pigeon had not slept well. For the first half of the night, he'd been so excited about what he'd found that afternoon that he hadn't been able to sleep. The night seemed an unbearable imposition. Pigeon wondered if he should share his discovery with his sisters or keep it to himself. He worried that he might not be able to find it again. He knew that was absurd that he could find it even in the moonless, unstarred night. But as he lay there on his skinny side between his sisters, to be extra sure that he did not forget, he traced the path again and again in his imagination, hoping to carve it into his brain, feeling right there on the mattress the sharp corners of the jumbled bricks through the thin soles of his shoes. Sleep won out eventually. Pigeon dreamed of his mother. He was walking alone through a parking lot and saw his sisters in a car. They called to him. They were laughing. 
When he got close, they rolled the window down, and he saw that his mother was there behind the wheel. But when she saw him coming, she pulled away. His sisters continued to laugh as she drove off, and Pigeon woke in tears. He lay in the dark between his sisters, trying not to resent them for, her, his, for their behavior in his dream, trying also to remind himself of what the next day held. But the anguish, anguish of his dream stained everything. Insomniac Pigeon could imagine no acceptable escape, no possible distraction from this quivering abandonment, his solitary smallness on a planet much too large. Sleep must have claimed him once again and spared him dreams, because the eastern sky was with apparent trepidation allowing itself to pinken at the rim, and Pigeon had no memory of the hours having passed. He rubbed his thin brown arms and stretched. The night was not cold, but his shirt was worn almost to translucence, and standing now without his sister's bodies to warm him, he couldn't help but shiver. He caught his breath in his hands, hoping he would see it. But it was not cold enough for that. It was just breath. He walked out, he walked out around behind the concrete slab and splashed urine on the dusty roots of an oleander. His pee didn't steam either. He tried to write his name, but he had started too late, and he ran out before he finished dotting the I. When Pigeon walked, and when he was nervous but standing still, his head bobbed back and forth. Chin first. Pigeon was almost always nervous, hence the name. But Pigeon's myriad fears had not stopped him before and would not stop him now in the thin, drooping light of the morning. He decided not to wake his sisters and not to share his discovery with them. Not today, at least. He scampered off, chin a bob, through the bushes and down along the trail to the edge of the lot. Pigeon crawled through the brambles to the dirt road below and hurried along past the cedars and the strange pit behind them, past the chain-link junkyard and under the bridge, his chin like a pendulum. He tried not to run and miss something important. You never knew where you'd find a portal or what you'd have to do to open one. Kick a rock, maybe, or circle three times, or maybe seven. It was best to try this with everything, to assume a certain esoteric structure to the cosmos, some hidden architectural order, and hence to always kick and circle and knock, to push anything that might be a button and pull any twig or protuberance that might be a lever, a lever in disguise. But right now, Pigeon didn't have time. Once, he thought he had found one. When the three of them first explored the roofless concrete shed out where the chickens used to be, with fingers interwoven, his sister boosted Pigeon up to scramble over the edge of the cinder block wall. The floor inside was strewn with mouse pellets, feathers, thousands of rusted nails, glass from one high window. In a far corner, he found a wide aluminum baking pan. Pigeon glanced inside it and saw a dark concrete walled passageway shimmering down beneath. His heart skipped. The other strata of the universe that Pigeon hoped to scale were always, in his imagination, better and more interesting than this one. If they proved frightening at times, it was only to provide opportunities for, her for heroism. Awash in awe, Pigeon leaned over the portal. A face blinked up at him. It was his own. He lowered a finger into the tin and saw a finger rise to meet him. His finger came back slick with a thick brown liquid. It was no passageway at all, just a tub of motor oil or some other viscous goo. Pigeon cut through yards and shinnied over chain-link fences. He bobbed down an alley, counted his steps across an empty parking lot. And there it was, set in the middle of a yard, heaped in wild disarray with broken red bricks. A strange gift for him and him alone. 
a trampoline. The frame and springs had only just begun to rust. The fabric was unfrayed. The sky was almost light now, the clouds pink and gold and gray. The sharp edges of the bricks dug through his thin-soled shoes. Pigeon hoisted himself aboard, tumbled toward the trampoline center, pushed himself up on his elbows and stood. He jumped, let himself fall to his haunches, bounced to his feet. The frame creaked. He bounced higher and lifted his knees to his chest. With each jump, he bounced still higher. Pigeon stretched his skinny arms, reached for the low clouds above him, and jumped as high as gravity allowed. When I wrote that, I didn't think about having to read thin-soled shoes out loud. Um, I'll read one other chapter, um, which takes a tiny bit of introduction. Um, the character in it remains unnamed. Um, she is uh, what used to be called a deaf-mute. Um, she cannot hear or speak. Um, and in her, the previous chapter in which she appeared, um, she was wandering at night. She lives in a um, kind of a drainage ditch um, and um, was wandering at night scavenging um, food and flowers um, from the dumpsters in a warehouse district near where she lives um, and going at night to avoid other human beings. And she had found a, a, a wounded hummingbird. Isn't that cute? Okay, this is the sad one. The other one was the happy chapter. Um, this chapter is called The Light. She had strayed too far. The dawn had come on with sudden violence, as if the horizon had been lit aflame. The warehouses were beginning to awaken. Just now, a truck had almost hit her. She couldn't hear it, of course, for she could not hear anything. But she felt the weight of it shake the asphalt, and she felt the heat of it. And when she turned, it was just feet behind her, the red-faced driver shouting something from the cab. She pulled her shirts about her and hurried towards home. The hummingbird had died. She had tied a stocking around it so that its broken wing would not dangle. She had tried to feed it. She cut a ripe pear into hummingbird-sized bits, but it would not take them. She walked a mile to the all-night liquor store and did not have to pretend not to hear the clerk yelling at her as she filled her pockets with packets of sugar. Pack by pack, she stirred the sugar into a mug filled with water from the drain pipe. She let the solution drip from her finger into the hummingbird's beak. It would not swallow. She even gathered flowers, first more cast-off bouquets from outside the warehouse, and later, when the bird ignored those, on the theory that wildness was a requirement of its nutrition, she plucked bougainvillea blossoms and the morning glories that climbed the chain-link fence above the embankment, poppies from the secret patch behind the high grass in the field beside the chroming shop jasmine from the hedge in someone's yard. She tied the stocking to a post outside so the bird could hang and almost fly. She waved the flowers one by one beneath it, but the bird disdained to acknowledge her offerings. On the morning of the third day, its little bowstring of a heart ceased quivering. She couldn't bear the thought of burying it, of sticky dirt on its bright plumage, eternal interment for a thing meant to fly. Rodents might find it. Worms would be sure to. Death and stillness had rendered the bird heavy. She wanted to make it light again. She soaked the stocking in rubbing alcohol and tried to burn the hummingbird over a matchbox pyre. The flames danced, then guttered out before the feathers were even singed. She poured on more alcohol with the same result. 
With the bird once again lodged in her pocket, she walked out to the gas station, farther than the liquor store. She retrieved a plastic pop bottle from the trash and waited for a customer. The first four who came refused her entreaties or pretended not to understand them, silent, gestural, and panicked as her attempts at communication were. The fifth arrival smiled at her from the seat of his idling Toyota. He wore a trim goatee and a security guard's uniform and his eyes were rimmed with red. How you doing, Lilith? He said, nodding as if he knew her. What's going on, baby? Of course she could not hear him. The goateed man pulled a half-liter Evian bottle from the cup holder beside him and took a long swallow of a foamy pinkish liquid. He squinted his eyes, jerking his head spasmodically about. He let out a long, slow, whistling breath and offered the bottle to the woman through his window. She shook her head. He opened the door and lifted himself from his seat, groaning. His shirt was untucked. He put out a hand, beckoning with one crooked finger. Come here now, Lilith, he said, just a little bit closer. The woman didn't move. The goateed man's eyes glowed with a watery sort of light. He tugged one ear and then the other. A smile tore suddenly at his face. Like a gymnast preparing for a leap, he pumped his arms twice at his side and leaned back so far that the woman feared he would hit his head on the door of the car behind him. Then, like a rubber band stretched to its limit and released, he whipped forward again, bending at the waist and jumping now, hopping up and down on the heels of both black sneakered feet, grabbing at the air and on the backswing, squeezing his hands into fists. Shock and awe, baby, he yelled. Come here, Lilith, let's make a fucking party. I'm going to call you shock and motherfucking awe. She did not wait for him to step toward her. She aimed one sharp kick between his legs. The impact hurt her toes, but she ran away, anyway, but she ran anyway, clutching her skirts and the tiny dead bird in her pocket until she was beyond the reach of the fluorescent light that illuminated the pumps. She hid crouched in the bushes, trying not to move, waiting for her heart to slow, watching the goateed man leap about, red-faced now and sweating, howling and spitting and shadowboxing, drop-kicking the air, head-butting it, hooting triumphantly and stomping his feet. Eventually, the man grew winded. He pumped his gas and drove away. She waited until three more cars had come and gone before she again emerged from the brush. Only later, after four additional strangers had rejected her mute requests, did she encounter a willing accomplice, a little boy. He was topping off the tank of his father's truck while the father used the restroom. Perhaps unaware of gasoline's forbidden stupefactory potential and heedless of his parents' oft-repeated injunctions regarding strangers, the boy allowed the woman to approach and fill her bottle from the pump. The hummingbird burned with an eager blue flame. She crouched and watched the smoke pour from its tiny form. When it had been entirely consumed and the flames, lacking further fuel, died down, she blew the ashes into the breeze and crawled into her bed. For nearly a week, she did not get out again except to squat in the dirt outside. She dreaded even that brief contact with the open air. But she realized eventually that if she did not force herself to get up, she simply never would. The only motion could pull her out of this. It did, and here she was as a result of its predation, caught by the approach of daylight, rushing homeward. The streets were already crowded with wheeling forklifts, men pushing handcarts, trucks in slow reverse. The buildings yawned, their mouths uncovered. 
the shutters above the loading bays had been rolled away, and here and there, and between the trucks, she caught a peek inside the warehouses. High-ceilinged expanses stacked to the roof beams with row upon row of crated goods, lit in a pale, fluorescent, windowless green. She dodged her way through the throng. Everyone ignored her. A pickup truck squeezed through the alley and nudged her aside with its bumper. Her hands began to tremble. A man, arms filled with boxes, backed into her and knocked her down without pausing to see what or whom she'd, he'd hit. Kneeling where she'd fallen, on one knee and with her palm against the street, she found that she was crying. She scraped the knee and maybe bruised an elbow, but it wasn't that. The shock of the fall dislodged something in her, shook loose a stopper somewhere, and the tears rolled from her eyes. She stood. The sky was nearly light now. A semi steamed past just inches from her shoulder. A small gaggle of men laughing and drinking coffee from paper cups approached, briefly engulfed her and walked on. The world moved through her like a river through a net. Her chin was wet. She swabbed her cheeks with the heel of her hand. The woman did not feel sorry for herself. She could not complain of her deaf ears or her mute tongue, of her poverty or her solitude. These things had long been hers. Nor did, she mourn the hum Nor did she mourn the hummingbird. It was only a bird. Birds die. What she felt was something more diffuse, an ache carved out by all the rush and tumble of the universe, all its carelessness and the loneliness of things, not just the living and the sentient, but the entire silent world of objects, cinder blocks, books, exhaust pipes. She could find no solidarity there. Everything was alone, everything misplaced. Everything was lost. The bird was not special, nor was she. She pushed her way out of the alleys and made a dash across the lots. The landscape now seemed soaked in sadness, saturated, as if sorrow were the one thing that held it all together, that saved the world from dissolution, preventing all its constituent particles from spitting off to stake their claims alone. Telephone wires hung from the poles along the avenues, and even the arc of them, the receding conjoining lines of them, seemed to, to tell a story of aloneness and loss. She reached the fence. She was almost home. She looked back. The sun had risen from behind a cloud and was high enough now to light those wires so that they looked like filaments of gold leading off to some less doleful place. The dust raised by the passing trucks glowed gold as well. The cars in the lots glittered. The hubcaps shone. The roof lines of the warehouses, too, and every east-facing wall was remade by the dawn, gilded and bright, as if everything had been lit quietly aflame. Then the woman did a funny thing. She laughed. She wiped her nose and laughed. For all the lights auroral trickery, the world seemed no less drenched with grief. But it was also something else, something almost complete and almost beautiful, but just beyond her reach. Thank you. kind of how the book grew. It grew in, in um, really in three distinct chunks. I mean, it started out as what I thought was going to be a short story um, about this character, the stranger. Um, and 
then I became interested in the characters that he was encountering, so I started giving them their own sections. Um, and then all of that didn't seem quite complicated enough for me. Um, and so the character of the, of the author began getting his own chapters as well. Um, I mean, writing this book was kind of a process of, of, of taking something simple and, and just messing with it until um, I felt satisfied it was sufficiently complicated <laughs> um, to catch my interest. Dorna. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, when things are working out nicely, they kind of mesh. I mean, due to you know financial exigencies, unfortunately, the fiction gets less time than I'd like to be able to give it. Um, and hi, Angela. Um, um, I used to kind of try to really treat them as, as completely separate objects and really like give them purity and, and keep them very far apart um, and have found that I'm a lot more interested in the last few years when I let those barriers kind of collapse um, and think of them as the same project um, or different approaches to the same kinds of questions. Um, but, you know, I mean, logistically what it usually means is that I have to do enough journalism and other kinds of work to steal away some time and, um, and really focus on the fiction. Because, I, I, you know, I think it's possible to... Writing fiction takes a great deal more concentration than writing journalism. Um, so I can, I can juggle three or four different pieces of journalism over the course of a month, but um, if I'm writing fiction, I really have to be able to give it some time to do that and let let it kind of seep through me. Yeah. Tommy. A related question. Um, I was at a, a uh, the California African American Art Museum the other day, seeing an exhibit related to the Pacific Standard Time, and uh, the 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 number of the artists who were in the show spoke of how they the 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 utter necessity of making a living shaped the art that they did and and some of the artists had magazine covers and design work that they'd done next to stuff that would be more considered fine art um, but they no one disclaimed the commercial work um, in favor of the of the more traditional fine art, and I'm wondering what kind of satisfaction you get out of writing one versus the other. I mean, you, when you complete a piece for a, a magazine, do you have that same kind of sense of completion you get when I, I'm assuming you get some sense of completion in your work? But you know, like. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it depends on the magazine. Um, you know, there's certainly some commercial work I do that is purely commercial work that um, where I feel completion when I deposit the check. Um, but um, I don't do that much of that work. Um, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, when I'm doing the kind of journalistic work that I that I'd like to be doing. Um, and that I want to be doing, where you know, 
I can let a story completely obsess me for a few months and, and um, you know, not think about much else and have it kind of take over some kind of important nodes of my being. Um, fighting through those ideas and getting them on paper and, and, and choosing the language um, and, and a structure that gets me to them correctly um, is probably a, a, delivers an equivalent satisfaction to writing um, fiction. I mean, I think one of the differences is that with uh, fiction, there's usually a lot less editorial interference. <laughs> um, you know, so with a you know, magazine piece, you usually have to deal with a whole lot more, um, you know, hands coming in, and um, and you know, because it is in this a magazine, which is also selling dishwashers or cars or something, um, there are limits on the kind of formal, you know, innovations you can employ and, uh, you know, you really do have to stick to a certain nor narrative format that you're much freer to break apart in fiction. So I, I definitely feel a lot freer in, in terms of writing fiction, um, but I think uh, both of them, ideally both of them are equally satisfying. or. <laughs> or torturous, depending on how you want to look at it. Yeah. One more question? Peter. Um, while you were writing Ether, were there any um, authors in particular who were speaking to you? Um, I guess I'm asking about influences for this particular work. Yeah. Um, Sure, there were. Um, I wrote this book over a really long, an embarrassingly long period of time. Um, certainly, Brian Evanson, um, who I think deals with both language as a question and and. Um, you know, takes various philosophical and religious questions really head on, um, and also doesn't like shy away from a certain amount of raw nastiness. Um, uh, was kind of on my mind. Um, probably Beckett. Um, those are the two that probably come most to mind that I was probably like staring at a lot while I was reading it. Um, yeah. Ben, thank you okay. very much. Thank you all for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.